let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to be looking at the first 26 verses this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love uh, for us and that your mercies are new this morning. And God, we just invite you into our time of studying your word. We pray that you would allow our hearts to be that fertile soil where you could plant your word deep within us. So would you send your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us in truth. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Bible Knowledge Commentary, Walvert and Zuck do a contrast between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. Nicodemus, of course, in John 3, and the Samaritan woman in John 4. He was seeking, she was indifferent. He was a respected ruler, she was an outcast. He was serious, she was flippant. He was a Jew, she was a despised Samaritan. He was presumably moral, she was immoral. He was orthodox, she was unorthodox. He was learned in religious matters, she was ignorant. Yet in spite of all the differences, this church man and this woman of the world, they both needed to be born again. They both had needs that only Jesus could met. What I love about Christ is his personal touch to individuals, how he individually ministered to people. We think of his three-year ministry, And in this time, there's not a lot of his teachings recorded for us. We really have short teachings that are given to us from Christ, but there's a lot of interactions with one person at a time. And each one of those interactions are completely different. And it shows Christ's ability and his love to connect with us. Nicodemus is completely different than the woman at the well, but Jesus is able to reach both of them with his love. So let's begin our journey in verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisee had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So Jesus hears that the Pharisees know that his ministry is gaining in popularity. His disciples are now baptizing more than John the Baptist. This is a big deal. John the Baptist was baptizing multitudes, but now that's shifted to Christ's ministry. And Christ then decides to leave Judea, which is southern Israel, and head to Galilee. I believe the reason uh, for that is because Jesus knew there would be a conflict with the Pharisees leading to the crucifixion, and it wasn't time for that yet. Jesus was living his life off of a divine timetable that the Father had set forth. The, thanks, Dan. So, just right in the front row. Um, all right, divine timetable. Here we are. So. Jesus was living out this divine timetable that it wasn't time for uh, the crucifixion. And so because of that, he then leads his ministry up to the Galilee region. Verse 4, but he needed to go through Samaria. And this is the key to our text. As Christ says, we have to go through uh, Samaria. And during this time, 
uh, the Jews would go around Samaria to go from Jerusalem to the Galilee region. If you're picturing a map and you have Israel, Judah is in the southern region, Jerusalem is in the southern region, and Galilee is directly north. So it would make sense to go directly north to Galilee. But instead, they would go east to the Jordan River and then go up the the Jordan River to the Galilee region. And the reason was is because they didn't want anything to do with the Samaritans. Could you imagine that? Like the Samaritans get under your skin to the degree of saying, I don't want to be in that community at all. I don't want to be in that region at all. So the background of the Samaritans goes to when Israel was taken captive. The Assyrians were taken captive of the northern part of Israel before Judah was taken captive by the Babylonians. When the Assyrians would come in and conquer a people group, what they would do is they would take out some of the Israelites, but then they would bring in people from other countries that they had conquered to Israel, and they would cause then these cultures to come together, and in essence, destroying the country from the inside out. And so, what it took place is the Samaritans really developed their own worship that had diverted from the word of God, and also their own ethnic group, and the Jews had a great prejudice because of this towards the Samaritans. Jesus, in his love for the Samaritans, what does he say? He says he needed to go through Samaria because he wanted to reach the Samaritans, because he wanted to reach the woman at the well. And in Luke 19, verse 10, it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. That's the mission of Christ, that he came to seek and save what was lost. In John 3, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So here's this claim from Christ that God loves the world and he gave his only begotten Son. Now Jesus is living that out to go to uh, Samaria. I want us to think for just a moment, is there a person, a place, or a people group that we tend to avoid? That we tend to go around the Samaria? And remember, the Jews believed in God, the Jews were very religious, but yet they had developed this prejudice that was very different from the heart of God. And sometimes as we are believers and as we're Christians, we get very accustomed to being together with one another, which is wonderful, but then we tend to say, well, here's a Samaritan, if you would, here's an outcast, if you would, here's a a difficult part of town, and I'm going to avoid that. And the heart of God is for us to go right through that for the love of God so that God's love could, could be reached. And is there, in a sense, someone that your heart has developed a, a hard heart towards or you tend to avoid or you tend to go around instead of saying, I'm going through Samaria because I want to reach them with the love of Jesus Christ? Something for us to maybe pray about this week as we attempt to apply the scripture is go spend some time in the Samaria right here in our city that you would tend to never go to. And spend an hour, spend maybe two hours, get a cup of coffee, maybe walk around a little bit, and just observe and maybe see the need that is, is taking place. You might not even need to go that far. Is there someone in your office that you would tend to not spend time with? And they're more of a difficult person for, for you. 
go out of your way to, to spend some time with them? Is there someone in your apartment complex on, on your street that is difficult for you? Say, I'm going to go to them because Christ came to me. Guys, we're all the Samaritan, aren't we? We're all the woman at the well, and Christ pursued us. And so then that gives us the heart to be able to reach out with, with the love of Jesus Christ. But a church begins to die, the message of Christ begins to die when we're not willing to go to the Samaria. Does that make sense? This is the heart of God for us to go to the Samaria. In verse 5, So he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. This is rich in biblical history, going all the way back to Jacob in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 33, Jacob buys this plot of land, and then in Genesis 48, he gives it to Jacob. So he comes to Sychar, which is between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim in northern Israel. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Christ is weary from his journey. Aren't you so thankful that John records that for us about the life of Christ? Jesus in his deity never gets tired, but in his humanity, he gets weary. Oftentimes, we don't think of Jesus as experiencing humanity to the fullest, but he did. He absolutely experienced humanity to the fullest. The only difference is without sin. So he was tempted with sin, but yet he never entered into sin. He knew what it was to be tired, to be sick, to be wore out, to be weary. And here it's the sixth hour. And there's a little bit of discussion on exactly which hour is the sixth hour. Most commentators tend to land on 6 p.m. going off of the Roman clock. Others say noon. But either way, Christ is tired. He's hungry. He's thirsty. And the scriptures tell us that he is weary. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. I would bet a few of us are weary this morning because of some of the Christmas traditions that we have cooked up, haven't we? Right? It's such a busy time of year. And there are things that we enjoy, but there's a lot of Christmas parties and Christmas commitments and Christmas gifts and Christmas Eve services and meals, and the list goes on and on and on. Comes with a lot of joy, but it also comes with a lot of chaos and sometimes some weariness. But it doesn't even have to be December to be weary, right? It seems like we're really good at wearing ourselves out as a, as a culture, and we're able to come to Jesus with confidence and know that he understands, and he wants to give grace and help in time of need, and true rest is found in him. I want you to notice what Christ does in his weariness in verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Here's the Samaritan woman. She comes to the well. She's drawing water for herself, and Jesus starts a conversation with her and says, give me a drink of water. Christ is doing this intentionally to bridge the gap between the physical and the spiritual. He wants to see this Samaritan woman reached. This is the reason why he needed to go through Samaria. But in his weariness, in his humanity, there must have been a temptation to say, I need rest. I don't have the energy to be able 
to minister to this Samaritan uh, woman. But Christ chooses to engage and chooses to serve. And then what we'll see next week is the disciples had gone to get him food. And they come back and Jesus says, I've already eaten. Well, who brought you some food? And Christ said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He found refreshment in doing what the father had told him to do. Have you ever had this experience where you're tired, you're wore out, you're already maxed out, and the Holy Spirit puts upon your heart, hey, this is someone that I want you to minister to. And it's not something that you're putting on yourself or somebody else is putting upon you, but God is is really leading you to. And you have that decision to make of saying, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. And at the end of it, you feel really refreshed. At the end of it, you go, wow, in pouring out, God has really poured into me. But then other times, maybe where we felt God's leading to serve, even though we're tired, and we choose to binge out on Netflix, and after six episodes, we go, man, I'm more tired than I, be- than I began. Now, there is some time that we need to sit and binge on Netflix and get rest, but there's other times where God's saying, no, this is the time to be able to, to serve. And so, even in weariness, to be able to seek God's a direction. Jesus is also crossing a great cultural prejudice between Jew and Gentile, but also men didn't talk to women. Men didn't talk to women out in public. So for Christ to talk to a Samaritan, whew, big deal. But then to talk to a Samaritan woman, even a bigger deal. And for us, when we think about sharing the love of Jesus Christ, church, it begins with a conversation. It begins with loving people enough to talk to them. Christ gets into this wonderful conversation with this woman because he simply asked for a drink of water. And that was the bridge to the spiritual conversation. My mom really has a heart for the lost. And when I was growing up and going grocery shopping with her, she would see this as a mission field. It was food for less. That's where we got our groceries in in Southern Oregon. And her strategy was to ask somebody what time it was. Back in the day, not everybody, you know, nobody had cell phones, right? So it wasn't like you had a watch on you. And so she wouldn't wear a watch and she'd see someone with a watch and she'd say, hey, uh, could you tell me what time it was? And that was a way of starting a conversation to see if God would open a door to be able to share the gospel. My favorite is when I'm getting groceries or anytime I've got to buy something and I don't do self-checkout and there's, there's someone at the register. I try to ask him, how's your day going, right? And it's just an opportunity to, to see what's going on in their life and see if God would, would open a door. But church, this is the way that we share the gospel. This is the way that we build a bridge into someone's life is to talk with them, to start a conversation. This all begins with a conversation. Verse 8, for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. I'm sure hunger contributed to Christ's weariness, right? So Christ is hungry at this point, and the disciples go in the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink for me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. As the conversation takes place, notice that the woman's understanding of Jesus increases the further the conversation goes. So if you highlight in your Bible or in your Bible app, 
her first understanding of Jesus is he's a Jew. And she says, why is it that you being a Jew are talking to me? Because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you know the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This is a fascinating verse where Jesus says, if you would have known these two things, then you would have done this. And the first thing, if you would have known, is that God wants to give you a gift. If you knew the gift of God, singular, and that gift of God is, is Christ. If you knew his heart to bestow a gift upon you in his son, his greatest gift, if you understood that. And is that our understanding of God? That he's good and that he's kind and that he's benevolent. This week I had an opportunity to do some Christmas shopping for our kids. And I love Christmas shopping. It's so fun to just be able to get them gifts. And I always have a hard time staying in budget when it comes to Christmas shopping. And the scripture tells us that we as parents are evil. We know that we're, we're evil compared to God. But we being evil know how to give good gifts to our kids. We, we delight in being able to give good gifts uh, to them. And how much more does the father desire to give gifts to those who would ask? So if she understood the benevolent, kind nature of God and the gift of God, and also if she knew who she was talking to, if she understood that she was talking to God's son, the, the son of man. And I think oftentimes that's the same for us with Christ, even for those of us that know Christ and have walked with him for some time, is that if we understood who we were talking to, if we understood the power and the majesty and the love of Christ, if we knew Christ's ability to be able to pour out uh, living water, Notice how quickly that Jesus turned this conversation from the physical to the spiritual. He already is starting to, getting her to think about something beyond just the, the physical water. So if she would have known the nature of God, known who she was talking to, then she would have asked for living water. Not just physical water, but that living spiritual water that could satisfy her soul. Then the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? She says, how are you going to be able to get flowing, living water? You don't even have a bucket to be able to go down into this deep well. First, she addressed Jesus as a Jew. That's her starting point. But now she addresses Jesus as sir. So there's the second title to underline or, or highlight. We know that archaeologists have discovered Jacob's well, and they believe this well to be one of the deepest in the Palestinian region. So this was an extremely deep well. In verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Seems a little bit sarcastic, doesn't it? She's saying, what, so you think you're better than Jacob now, right? And she's right on point, even though she's sarcastic. Jesus is greater than Jacob. She didn't realize that. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. 
But the water that I give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Here she is coming to get physical water. And have you noticed that this need to drink water never goes away? Seems like especially this time of the year in Colorado. So dry and you drink water and you're like, oh man, I, I just need to drink some more water. Jesus says you're going to always come back to this physical water. But then he says, the water that I give will cause you to never thirst. This living water that he is speaking of. And this amazing promise with living water is once you receive living water, then you become a fountain of living water to others. You become a source of living water to others. In John 7, Jesus picks up on this living water theme. It says, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus got up and he said, If you believe in me, then you are going to be filled with living water. Your heart is going to flow out living water. But then he tells us what the living water is. It's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit hasn't been given because Christ hasn't been crucified. So how do we experience living water? Well, it's through believing in Christ. Believing that he's the Messiah. That he died for our sins and rose again. Then we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit the moment that we're saved. And God begins to pour out living water into our hearts and our lives. And this living water, it never stops. The Holy Spirit pouring into our lives, it's a continual source of refreshment, of strength, of help, of comfort. It's really the key to the Christian life. It's the key to this woman and what she is missing in her life is this relationship with God. In Jeremiah 2, verse 13, the children of Israel had turned away from living water. It says, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's easy to do, isn't it? Only God can give this living water. But we can forsake God and then begin to dig cisterns, to dig wells, thinking that this is going to produce living water for us. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She's like, let's do this. This is great. I want this living water so that I don't have to ever come back to this well and draw water. From being able to go to Uganda to visit some of our missionaries, one of the things that is very common there is for people to have to go some distance to get water to be able to drink. And so you'll see people uh, carrying these jugs, these giant jugs of water on their shoulders, uh, women and kids carrying water on their shoulders. Or if they're fortunate enough to have a bike, then they put these water containers on their bike. And sometimes the well is not in a convenient place. And that seems to be what's taking place here in Sychar. They've got to go out of the city to get to the well. The disciples had gone to the city to be able to get food. They had to walk out to the well, draw the water every day, and then take it back into the community where they lived. And she's saying, this is great. I would love this to not ever need water anymore. But her mind is still stuck on the physical. 
Even though Jesus is talking about the spiritual, she hasn't yet shifted gears. And this is where the conversation gets really interesting in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. This seems like it's from left field, doesn't it? Here they are talking about water and living water and her experiencing living water. But Jesus is going to address and he's going to put his finger on what is preventing her from experiencing living water. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. (laughs) Busted. (laughs) Busted by Christ, right? In such a gracious, loving way. She's like, I don't have a husband. You know, I, I can't go call, call my husband. And I picture Jesus with a smile, with a loving smile saying, you know what? You've got five husbands. And the guy that you're with is not your husband. And, and you've spoken well in this. So here she was going through her life and really looking to a human relationship, a relationship with a man to satisfy her soul to satisfy this spiritual longing in her life. And she was coming up empty every time because they could never satisfy. And now she's gotten herself into a place where she's living in sexual sin. She's living in sexual immorality. And Christ knows that the counterfeit has to be addressed in her life before she can experience living water. And Jesus knows what the counterfeit is in our lives, doesn't he? And I think it's easy for relationships to be what we look to to fulfill us instead of Christ. And sometimes those relationships are in a sinful way. We step out of God's instructions with sex and begin to use sex outside of marriage, thinking that this is going to satisfy But also sometimes, not even in a sinful way, you can begin to look to your spouse, you can begin to look to your kids, and put them before the Lord, and it becomes a a counterfeit source. They were never intended to be living water in your life. And you may even have a healthy marriage and healthy relationship with your kids, but this morning you're saying, I'm so empty. And that's because you're looking to something other than the Lord to provide that living water. It could be your job. You find your source of identity, your source of satisfaction in your job. But it's never going to fully satisfy. So you have one accomplishment, you need another accomplishment. You have one accolade and you need another accolade. You get one degree and you need another degree. Because it's becoming a a false source, a, a, a false well for you. And God in his love for us allows us to experience emptiness, allows us to get to that place where we realize, man, I'm looking to the wrong thing so that we will look to the Lord and experience true living water. One of the greatest gifts that God gives to us is an empty soul apart from him. What really brought me to Christ in a genuine way, when I was 14, I'd made a profession of faith when I was young, was an empty soul. I was looking to sports, looking to basketball to satisfy me, and it left me empty. I said, man, there's got to be more. 
And it was the emptiness that I felt that drove me to cry out to the Lord. And God met me and revealed his unconditional love to me. But it hasn't been the last time that I've experienced emptiness inside of me. Because I'll go through my journey with the Lord and there's times that I get sidetracked. Times when I start to look to other things outside of the Lord to satisfy me. And God will allow that to go on for a period of time. And then I'll look inside and go, man, I feel so empty. There's this incredible emptiness inside of me and yet I'm surrounded by goodness. I'm surrounded by the goodness of God. I'm surrounded by goodness in my family. I'm surrounded by goodness and and friendship, but yet I feel so empty. And that's God's gift to me to cause me to come back to him, to come back to that living water. Many times in our culture, we are afraid of despair. We're afraid of emptiness. We want to bubble wrap ourselves so we don't feel emptiness. We want to bubble wrap those that we love around us, just just shrink wrap them in bubble wrap, saying, I don't want you to ever feel pain. I don't want you to feel emptiness. I don't want you to feel despair. But we may be robbing people of God's greatest gift to them. God's greatest gift is saying, this is not going to work until we get to a place of realizing I was created for fellowship with God. So this morning, you may be in a place where you've been looking to human relationships or you've been looking to something else. Church, it's not God's intent that we would just simply read about living water, read about Jesus supplying living water to this woman, but that we would experience living water this morning. That we would say, okay, I'm done drinking from the counterfeit well. And Jesus, I'm, I'm ready to look to you to experience living water afresh in my life. Verse 19, then the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. (laughs) There's something supernatural going on here. How do you know that I've been married five times and the guy I'm with is not my husband? So she goes from seeing Jesus as a Jew to seeing him as sir, and now he's a prophet. This guy has supernatural knowledge of me. He knows me. She has a spiritual question now. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. The Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim in around 400 BC. Of course, the Jews have the temple on the Temple Mount. So the Samaritans are saying, this is the proper location to worship Mount Gerizim, and the Jews are saying the Temple Mount. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me that the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Jesus is saying things are changing, the hour is coming, and now is that time where worship is not going to be predicated on a location. It's not about Mount Gerizim, it's not about the Temple Mount, but it's about your heart to turn towards the Lord in worship. It's easy for us to fall into this trap, too, of worship being about location. Okay, we come to a church building, we sing worship songs, we study the word, this is our time for worship, right? Go home, garage is the place for projects, where I'm doing projects, where I tend to get frustrated and can lose my temper, right? That's where the garage comes into play. 
You got work. Work is the place that you go to to get things done. But God doesn't see worship that way. We have the opportunity now to have our worship not be built upon a location. Our worship sometimes looks like a TV dinner. Remember TV dinners? Maybe you still enjoy a TV dinner. Everything's compartmentalized. You've got the green beans and the mashed potato and, and the chicken, the yummy gourmet chicken from a <laughs> TV dinner, right? And that's how we tend to approach our lives with worship. God doesn't want it that way. He wants it to be a chicken pot pie. It's all mixed together, isn't it? We can worship the Lord here. We can worship the Lord in our garage. We can worship the Lord at work. We can worship the Lord in our car. That's a real test, isn't it? But we're always with the Lord. We're not any more with the Lord here than we are at any other place in our lives. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me that the hour is coming. Verse 22, You will worship what you do not know. We we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. As Samaritans, Jesus says, you don't know what you worship. You've mixed things up. It's become a smorgasbord of your own beliefs. And this is a good thing for us to consider. Do I know what I worship? Am I aware of what I am in worshiping? Jesus says the Jews know what they worship and also that salvation is of the Jews. Jesus is an Israelite. And because of that, salvation comes through the nation of Israel. In verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. The hour is coming and now is when true worshipers, so there's false worshipers, but God wants us to be true worshipers. The word worship in the Greek, it means to to bow down, to kneel, and to pay homage or respect. The idea of worship is you're so moved that you would kneel or you would bow. Do you have to kneel or bow in order to worship? No, you don't. But there are times when it's really important for our body to line up with our heart, to kneel before God, to get on our face before God and to worship him. And then we're to worship him in spirit and in truth. What fascinated me as I was studying this this week is the order of spirit and truth. I would think that God would put truth first, because truth is so important, the truth of Scripture, and to worship God according to Scripture, and that is important, but God says that our spirit, we should worship in spirit and in truth. Why would spirit or heart come first? Because if a heart hasn't turned towards the Lord, it's difficult to receive the truth, But once our heart has turned towards the Lord, once we're worshiping God from our spirit, then we're able to receive the truth of Scripture. Jesus told the parable of the sower, that the seed is like the Word of God, and there's different heart conditions, different soil conditions, and it's only the heart that is fertile that bears fruit. And so when my heart turns to God and I worship God in spirit, then I become open to the truth of Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is writing about how the nation of Israel has a veil over their eyes when it comes to Jesus. But then in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 16, it says this, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So when they turn to God in spirit, then the veil is taken away and they're able to understand truth. 
So as we worship the Lord, we want to worship him from our spirit, and we also want to worship him in truth according to scripture. So this is really a mission type of verse for us as a church, is we want to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth during our time together, but also our time out of this place as well. So we dedicate a lot of time in our services to song, to worship the Lord in spirit, to give us an opportunity for our hearts to turn towards the Lord. Why do we have that time of singing before the time of the word? Well, it's really just to warm up for the message. It's really just to give us more time to get into the parking lot and to hang out in the foyer a bit. And, you know, if we started the message right at nine, we wouldn't, not, not all of us would be here, right? And so what we do is it's just really the warm up. No, it's not the warm-up at all, right? The, the whole point and the whole purpose is something happens as we sing. My, my heart is turning to the Lord as I sing to Him. I mean, how many times in our week do we have just dedicated to be able to, to sing to the Lord? And as we sing to the Lord in spirit, then that prepares our hearts for truth. Worship doesn't end when the singing ends. Right now, there's an opportunity to worship God in truth as we're reading God's word together, to be able to say, Lord, that's right. And as we're doing that, we're worshiping God in truth. How does that look in our daily lives? To, to turn our heart to God and say, God, I love you. Thank you for who you are and your grace and, and begin to give him that adoration and then to spend time in God's word and to believe it and receive it and through the power of the spirit to walk in it, we're worshiping God in spirit and in truth. But notice then the father's response. The father is seeking such to worship him. We think about seeking God. And there's so many exhortations to do that in scripture. This is God on the pursuit. This is the father saying, I'm going to seek out that person because they're worshiping me in spirit and in truth. What if the father's like, oh man, it's Sunday morning at nine. I love it when that group gets together on Austin Bluffs and Academy because they worship me in spirit and in truth. I can't wait to seek that group out. Or what if, all right, the Lord's going, okay, it's Monday morning, 630. There they go, seeking me in spirit and in truth. I'm going to seek them out. They're turning their hearts towards me. They're in the word, believing it and receiving it. This is a powerful concept to think about the Father seeking us as we worship in spirit and in truth. Verse 24, God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Because God is a spirit, he's not limited to a specific location. Therefore, as we worship, we're not limited to being at a place, but we can enter in no matter what location we're at. In verse 25, then the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. As a Samaritan, she was looking for the coming Messiah. And she says, I know that the Messiah is coming. So you can see the wheels turning. First, Jesus is a Jew. What is this Jew doing talking to me? Then he's sir. And then he's prophet. And now she's wondering, could he be the Messiah? In verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. And this is where we're going to pause. You've got to come back next week, next Sunday. 
to get the rest of the story, but she believes that Jesus is the Messiah and takes the message of Christ to her community. What's the application for us? Is what is preventing you from experiencing living water? What's preventing you from experiencing living water? What counterfeit well are we going to this morning? Worship opens up our hearts to living water. As we worship the Lord, as we believe in him, as we turn our hearts towards him, as we spend time in the word of God, this opens up our hearts to living water. Also, this section of scripture, it it gives us a great example to follow to be able to love and to reach out to people. Guys, Samaria is not very far away. We live in an extremely divided culture with a lot of hatred, with a lot of prejudice, with a lot of racism. And if any group of people should be living something different, it's us. Amen? Amen. And to say, God is equipping us to go out of these doors and we live in Samaria. We live in Samaria. What we're experiencing right now this morning on this corner of the city is very different from what the majority of people are experiencing right over at Walmart, right over at King Supers, and throughout the whole entire Front Range. And as we go out to do our daily lives and meet our daily needs and raise kids for those that have kids, if we look around, there's a woman at the well. If we look around, there's somebody that is extremely hurting, that's been trying different things in their lives and coming up up empty, and it doesn't take as much as we may think to be able to stop and love them and care for them and start a conversation with them and see how the conversation might go from the physical to the spiritual. To allow the living water of Christ to pour into our lives to then flow through our lives. Christ wants to give us living water so that then we can be a conduit of that living water to pour out to others. As we take communion, we're going to celebrate uh, communion this morning, and communion's going to be passed, and we'll wait till everyone's served, and then we'll partake together as a church family, is think about to the degree that Jesus went to be able to pour out living water. He went to the cross, died for our sins, and rose again so that we could receive the Holy Spirit. And as we reflect upon the sacrifice of Christ, also reflect upon what is it in my life that I've been looking to other than Jesus to try to fulfill me and to satisfy me? Let's pray together and prepare our hearts for communion. Jesus, we, we need you. Our, our souls thirst. There's such an emptiness, a void in us apart from a relationship with you. And though this story is so beautiful and fascinating, we know that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. We don't want to simply read about living water, but we want to experience it afresh in our lives. So would you reveal to us, would you show to us those counterfeit wells? And as we pause for 
just a moment to reflect upon communion, would you really minister to 